Thank you, Mike. And Pat. And everyone else who brings us to this point each Sabbath. Last week we were in uh, John 12 in the narrative of the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary of Magdala. The rest of John 12 is an amazing uh, narrative. It's a proclamation of his hour has come. And it's signaled by two Gentiles who show up out of nowhere asking to see Jesus. After that encounter is when Jesus says, now my hour has come. I'm not going to look at that today because we did back December 26th. If you want to take a look, the father, the son, and the other sheep is what we called it, studying there. But I want you to note that if you do, concentrate on those two Gentiles just showing up out of nowhere saying, sir, we would see Jesus. And then Jesus actually, after that encounter, whatever, we don't have a record of what happened. We don't have a record of their meeting or what Jesus said to them or did for them. All we know is that when he's done with it, he says to the heavens, my hour has come. This is it. This is the transition, if you will. And in the middle of that, of that proclamation that his hour has come, uh, the Father from heaven even answers to him because Jesus said, you know, glorify your name and Father, and, and the Father answers from heaven, I've, uh, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again, meaning what's about to happen tomorrow, if you will. So in the midst of that, though, he has these words. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of the light. After Jesus had said this, he departed and he hid from them. So he's saying it to everybody who was physically present with him. The admonition is anybody who is physically present with him, that first generation that we're talking about. We belong to the second generation. We come by faith, not by sight, not by having to touch him. But that first generation, the last thing he says to him before he goes into quote unquote hiding, if you will, is believe in the light while you have the light and you will become children of the light. So with John 13, uh, Dr. John Pauline tells us in his Bible Amplifier series on John that the entire gospel of John is about to be transformed. He will retire completely away from his public ministry. And for the next five chapters, all the way to chapter 17, it'll just be him and the disciples. No one else. It's a transition, if you will. It all takes place in the upper room, as far as we can tell. The upper room where we get the Lord's Supper, uh, where we get communion, where we get the foot washing that we will look at today. He'll begin to instruct his disciples at great length, like I said, five chapters worth. Dr. Pauline reminds us, they are now in the shadow of the cross. It looms tomorrow. Tomorrow is the day that it'll happen, three o'clock tomorrow, whereas now it's after sundown on Friday. On Thursday, excuse me. Excuse me. He tries to prepare them for the one thing that they've been dreading, in fact, have even denied, even though he said so, that he's going to leave them. I'm going away, he says. So imagine that. Out of a 20-chapter gospel, five of them are devoted completely to get those 12 guys to understand that he's leaving that he has to go away. And this is how he'll prepare him for it. It says that before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. So it's a remarkable statement, he says. He does it because he said, um, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's remarkable because you'd think getting this close to the cross, Jesus would give him just a few moments to himself, don't you think? Uh, figuring what he's about to go through, that this is the entire mission and that this was been planned from before the foundation of the world. Maybe, just maybe, he had allowed himself 20 seconds to think of himself. No, he's only got one thing on his mind and that is his disciples to prepare them for what's about to happen. 
As he approaches the cross, this is it. It's his disciples that are on, on, on his mind. His love for his disciples will not even allow him just one thought as to what's going to happen tomorrow. He looks past his own immediate suffering to contemplate their future suffering and try somehow to prepare them for it. Prepare them for a world they'll have to face without his physical presence. This is it. So think about this. This has to be the way that John feels writing this, don't you think? As I've pointed out before, John is the last living link to Jesus when he writes this. He could be in his hundreds. He's the last one. He's the last living witness. He has to be feeling something of what Jesus felt that night. The experience that Jesus is having, John might be having by writing this because he knows that when he goes away, the eyewitness goes away. Maybe he knew what it was like. No, he did know what it was like to lose Jesus' physical presence, to begin to move it into a spiritual realm or a faith realm, if you will. He's their last living link to the earthly Jesus. Maybe he knows exactly how Jesus felt at this moment. Because all this, for the next, like I said, four or five chapters, all of it is going to be to try to prepare them to move from his physical presence or a temporal presence, if you will, actually walking and talking with him in body and begin to transition them to a relationship by faith. One where the Holy Spirit will come in Jesus' physical presence place, if you will, and begin to live and to breathe in them. How do you prepare 12 men for that? That's what this beginning is. That's why it's so exciting. By the way, this is when prayer meeting pretty much hit the mud. We were going along okay. We were going along pretty well. But there is so much in this that yeah, we've spent nearly an entire year in these chapters here. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful what Jesus does for his friends the night before he has to go away. So Jesus gives them this farewell teaching session, if you will. What would you do? What would you include if you knew you were going away? What do you, where do you start? Where do you begin? What have they missed? What don't they get? <laughs> and with these guys, they don't get anything right now. They don't get it at all. Are they ready? Are they prepared to carry out this ministry? Do they have a clue? No, they don't. The image they have stuck in their head is, again, this temporal king, that, that it's going to be a temporal kingdom. They're stuck on the fact that Jesus told them that they would have 12 thrones that look just like his and that they were going to sit in judgment with him over all the realm. They have this temporal king in mind and they do not get it out of their heads. So less than 24 hours away from the cross, what are they concerned with? What are they concerned with? Luke tells us, it says that a dispute, a what? So less than 24 hours away, they're fighting is what they're doing. And what are they fighting over? Their favorite topic to fight over. Among those to which of them was to be regarded as what? As the greatest, he says. 24 hours away. How would, you, how would you deal with them? 24 hours away, I've got less than, I don't know, uh, three hours to get this across to them, and they're fighting about what? They're fighting about who's going to be greatest in a kingdom they don't even conceive or understand of yet. So remember this. The one thing that you have to remember is that going into this teaching they have in their mind that the kingdom that, that is going to come is just going to be like this temporal kingdom. In other words, the ones who are greatest will rule. The ones that are greatest will rule along with him, he says. But he tells them this. He says the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. 
but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the one who serves. So that's his opening shot right there. That's his opening shot. I'm not so sure they heard it, but he has to start there because that's where they are. Who do you think among us is the greatest? So in John 13, he doesn't teach them by lecture. This is all we know is the words that that they said to him, but he gives them an illustration. And for those of us who celebrate communion at least four times a year, what illustration is that? What's he about to do? What do we do before we take communion? Well, pre-pandemic, yeah. He's gonna wash their feet. Now, I don't spend a lot of time on this because actually uh, I've been here almost six years, coming up on six years, and I know I've preached about the foot washing at least five times, okay? And we have communion coming up in a month and a half, and I know that's what we're going to be talking about because we're probably still gonna be in the Gospel of John when we do, okay? But I will point this out. I will point this out, that it was custom It was custom for you to bathe first before coming to a feast. Now, when I say bathe, I'm not talking about hygiene. I'm talking about spiritual cleansing. Remember, I've told you before that they had their own form of baptism. It was an actual immersion, if you will. And so they've bathed before they've come. And then it was also custom that before a meal, you would wash their feet. I showed you last week physically why it was a good idea to wash your feet because you probably during dinner are sticking your feet in someone else's face. The washing of the feet was a ceremony that preceded entry into the house when there would be guests. It would be provided by the host. It's a fundamental social mandate. But in this case, there was nobody there to do that. Now, was it the host's job? Actually, all the host provided was what? Was the room. He sent somebody to prepare them. Who did he send to prepare them? Peter and who? Go and prepare the Passover meal so we may eat it. The two top contestants in who is the greatest in the kingdom debate are the ones that are supposed to go and serve. It was their job. Either they uh, felt that they were not in a position, of course they wouldn't. They were the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So they're not going to wash feet. That's reserved for the servant. But they also didn't bother to find anybody to do it. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus hasn't said a word. He hasn't said a word. It was their job. They were the two greatest contestants, if you will. In this particular case, Jesus doesn't say anything. They eat the holiest meal in all of Judaism with dirty feet. All because the two who were supposed to are too proud to do it. It says here, when it begins to set up the, uh, to give you the atmosphere of what happens before he begins this process, the devil had already what? Had already put into Judah's heart, that's what he was about to do. So during supper, you've got the 11 and you've got the one who will betray him already planning on what? Betraying him, it's in his heart. So you have those guys, uh, those are the ones that are sitting there about to receive this illustration. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, he gets up from the table, took off his outer robe, tied a towel around himself, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. This foot washing is no ordinary act. Jesus knows who he is, and he knows who he's ministering to. Who is Jesus? King of kings, Lord of lords, one with the Father? And who are these guys he's ministering to? Twelve guys that are too proud to wash each other's feet because each one of them thinks that they are temporarily greater than the other. 
and also one of them who has it already in his heart what he's about to do. Does Jesus know that he knows what he's about to do? Yeah. So did Jesus go around all 11 and then wait till Judas and say, ah, not gonna wash yours, Judas. I know what you're about to do, bro. No. Everybody he's ministering to, at least one betrayer. This is a deliberate act of divinity in service to sinful, even unregenerate humanity. See, a lot of us are willing to give grace to those who we feel have regenerated themselves, people that we think are sorry and have gotten their act together. We have no problem giving them grace. Jesus says, there is no such thing as that, that which you say. There is nobody who's regenerated. If I don't give grace to the unregenerate, it is not grace. The king of kings is washing feet. And we don't know how well they're taking this lesson because we only have recorded one disciple who responds. Who's the one who you would expect to open his mouth right now? And he does, doesn't he? He's the only one that responds. He comes to Simon Peter and he says, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you don't know what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will what? You'll never wash my feet. Never wash my feet. In Greek, he uses the strongest negative terms that you could possibly use. It's almost translated this way. He'll absolutely not permit Jesus to wash his feet no matter how long he has to think about it. No way in all eternity I will totally, uh, I am totally appalled at the possibility of you washing my feet. That's what he says in Greek. Sorry. But Jesus' reply is just as strong, isn't it? He says what? Unless I wash you, you have what? No share with me. You won't be the least or the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You don't let me wash your feet, Peter. This is how important this is. This is how important you need to get this, he said. You don't let me do it. You will have no share in me whatsoever. See, Peter proudly thinks he's protecting Jesus from humiliation. He's done it once before, too. When Jesus, first time he declared to the disciples that he was going to die, that he was going to be betrayed and die, what did Peter do? Peter said the same thing. No way. I won't let you die. Jesus' reply was pretty strong then too, wasn't it? Get behind me, what? He called him Satan. Peter thinks he's protecting him against humiliation. But it's pride. It's all pride. You know how I know? Because I'm the same way. Righteous people, self-righteous people especially, are the only ones that can sin while doing good. We're the only ones that can make humility a sin. I had a professor once said, you've met those people, people that are so proud of their humility, they wear it like a badge. And that's what Peter is doing here. Jesus makes it clear that what he's doing actually is protecting himself from the humiliation of admitting that he has dirty feet. He won't even bring himself to the point to admit that he needs him. And by the way, this becomes the fatal blow between those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. The only people that don't believe in Jesus in this entire narrative up until now are the ones who don't feel they need him. You can't be the Messiah because I don't need you as a Messiah. Because what do the self-righteous leaders have? They've got their own understanding, their own intelligence, their own interpretation. They have present truth. They have their Bibles. So you can see why Jesus words this a little stronger with the one who's supposed to be the leader of his church. We've heard it written before. It is not humility to refuse what the Lord deigns to do for us. The truest humility comes when we accept 
the self-sacrificing grace of Jesus. Who's done that today? Nobody. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we're in the right place. I guess we get to learn the lesson as Peter and the disciples learned it. So Peter's going to try anyway. He's going to try to keep that pride on anyway. Oh, sorry. I have to come to here and says, uh, one, uh, where am I? There it is. Sorry. So he's going to try to keep that pride on. He's going to try to, to, to uh, paint it as something else. Lord, not my feet only then, but then what? My hands and my feet. In other words, bathe me. And what's he doing? He's doing what he's always done. He's going to go one up on everyone else to try to prove that that's what he needs to be as a leader. He's going to do it again in John 20. Jesus says, bring a few fish. Peter's going to drag the whole darn net over there. Everyone else is afraid to even look at the image walking on the water. Peter says, if that's really you, call me out. And I know he got in the water looking over his shoulder to the guys going, look at me. So don't just wash my feet like you did with the ordinary guys here. Wash what? Wash everything. And Jesus says these beautiful words, one who is bathed does not need to what? One who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. You already bathed before you came here, Peter. You don't need everything washed. You only need what? You only need your feet washed, if you will. You're clean, though not all of you. Why? Because he walked there. He walked there. Jesus uses the fact that they had bathed before as a beautiful spiritual analogy. He distinguishes between two types of spiritual cleansing here. First, the bath. First, the, the, the ceremonial cleansing that they did before, which was total immersion, by the way. The first time, so, so we are to take this to look at, if we're looking at it as, as spiritual cleansings, if you will, what's the first time we took a bath? What was the first time that we were immersed in our spiritual life? Our baptism. Our baptism. That's exactly what Jesus is pointing out here. The first bath. It's, it's when you accept Jesus, when you come to realize what Jesus has done for you. I realize I caught you by surprise why you didn't raise your hand, but have you accepted Jesus' grace in your life? Have you accepted his forgiveness for your sin? Have you accepted his righteousness as a gift? When you come to realize that, you go through a ritual to try to show people that. And what is that? Our baptism. When we stood in the waters, that's what we were saying. Amen? The time that we accept the atonement, if you will, of Jesus making us right and one with God again. When we come to that realization, the Bible tells us to go ahead and be what? Be baptized, if you will. The second ritual, after your baptism, the first time you ever took communion, what's the next immersion that you take? our foot washing because we need to deal with what happened from when we stood there to the days that took place in our lives until we got down to the basin. The foot was the one part that came in regular contact with the earth. It needed continual cleansing. So the one who's been made one with God needs continual renewal as life went on. How many here quit sinning the day they came up out of the water for baptism? Nobody, really. Wow. Me neither. I held my hand up to see if I could get you to hold your hand up. So we need something after baptism, what is what he's saying, right? And what do we need? We need our feet washed. We need that which comes in contact with the fallen world. My sinful nature comes in contact with the fallen world, and it gets soiled. I fall, I fail, you fall, you fail. And Jesus is saying, don't worry. You don't need to be baptized again. Just let me wash your what? 
Communion's an opportunity to be rebaptized four times a year at least. I thought that was pretty good news, but I can't tell. Okay, there we go. The beautiful analogy drawn from this, though, which the disciples have to come to understand, is this that our daily shortcomings, what happened to us between the Baptist baptistry and the basin, does not call our atonement into question. Isn't that what he just said? You don't need to be baptized again, Peter. You just need your feet washed. I already cleansed you. You've already been made one in me. Let's just wash your feet. Let's take care of last week's sins. Let's take care of this morning's sins. Let's do that. The one who's bathed only needs their feet washed. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will cleanse, uh, forgive our sins and cleanse, wash away all what? unrighteousness. We're assured and secure. Once we've been washed, all we need after that is our feet to be washed. See, that's not what a Pharisee believed. That's not what a a self-righteous Bible believer church person believed back then. They believed that if you're still struggling with sin, then there's no way that you could be right with God. You're either for him or against him. And that's what Paul struggled with. When Paul found Jesus, he found out that the struggle, if you will, the daily struggle, did not condemn him. We still move forward. We still move on. We still want to get better. We still want to leave sin behind. Amen? But when we struggle, we are not condemned by God. We are told by God to continue to come. That's what Paul figured out between Romans 7 and Romans 8. I wake up every day, Paul says. Every day, and there's a war going on. What I know to do and what I want to do in the members of my flesh, he says. I do the very things I don't want to do. And I don't do the very things that I want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this war, this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ that I can serve him in my mind, in my heart while still fighting a war in my body. And then chapter eight, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why these disciples have to learn this because these disciples are gonna go to people who don't know that message. They're going to be facing two people. They're going to be facing a group of people that that believe as the Pharisees, as the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes believe that if you were struggling, you were condemned by God. In fact, these disciples were condemned by every one of them at one time in their histories. So maybe now, just maybe, they want to be right. They want to be temporally strong. They want to be rulers in the kingdom because I'm righter than anybody else. And by the way, by the way, how are they going to feel about Gentiles when the Gentiles start coming? It was beautiful that Jesus used that example as a starting point. Because now they're walking away going, oh, man, I thought I was finally going to be better than somebody else. And he just accepted those two Gentiles into the kingdom. And this is what they need to learn. He put it this way. My sheep hear my what? They hear my voice and they follow me. They know what he sounds like. We begin to know who he sounds like, what he sounds like. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And what my father has given me is greater than all else and no one can snatch it out of the father's hand. I begin to hear my my master's voice. I hear it. That sounds like Jesus. By the way, by the way, Even when you're reading scripture, you have to be able to hear him. And it's very possible to leave the word on the page and have it not sound like Jesus. 
It's what's beautiful of being in him is that as we grow and as we, as we walk from day to day, as we allow him to cleanse us, as we allow him to wash our feet, as we allow him to continue to allow us to be one with God because of him, we get to know his voice better. And we may even look someday at something that we've believed for years and all of a sudden today, it doesn't sound like Jesus anymore. And that's what he has to get across to these guys. It was the whole reason that he begins it with this illustration. The image of Jesus washing the disciples' feet is the very forgiveness for sins committed after our baptism, if you will. It's an important lesson. It's an important lesson. He says, after he'd washed their feet and put on his robe, returned to the table, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? Notice, none of them answered. Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are what? And you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash what? One another's feet. Very truly, I tell you, oops, I'm sorry. Do I have that? Yeah, very truly, I tell you, I've set for you an example Servants are not greater than their master, nor are we messengers greater than the one who sent us. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So notice how he brings it home now. Because that is exactly the opposite of how they feel about each other right now, right? They don't feel that any one of them should serve the other. Why? Because I'm greater than you. You ought to wash one another's feet. By the way, is he talking only about communion? No. If he washes ours for the forgiveness of our sins, then he wants them to do it for each other so they can forgive each other. The key, as I have done for you. So I keep asking the question, I keep hearing it in my head. Do you know what I've done for you? So every time, every time I begin to feel a little bit self-righteous, every time I have a real sinner in my midst and I start to feel a little good about myself, like the the tax collector in the Pharisee parable, I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. Hopefully, before a word comes out of my mouth, I hear in my head, Greg, do you know what I've done for you? So in telling him that, you have to remember too, there's still one at the table, right? All of this, the illustration and everything was for everybody at the table. And there's one at the table where Jesus quotes here, even my bosom friend whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about Judas specifically, right? See, in 2 Samuel 15, we're told that David was betrayed by a friend who joined his son Absalom's revolt against him. Ahithophel was his name. He was David's wisest counselor. He might have even been Bathsheba's grandfather. David comes to God betrayed by his own son, but it's his friend, it's his friend that stings. It's his friend that are now his enemies because of this. But he doesn't come in any sort of moral superiority to ask God to do anything based on who he is. David doesn't come and say, I was Israel's king. I was Israel's best king. I am a man after your own heart. Do something about this traitor. He doesn't do that. He begins the whole scripture reading that Mike said, This way, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, and what? For I have sinned against you. David comes as a fellow sinner to ask God what to do about the traitor. Do you see why Jesus quoted this song? Or why John, uh, he didn't actually quote it. John put it together, and the other gospel writers 
put it together. The one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I tell you this now, before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe that what? That I am he. When all this comes to being, in other words, when the one gets up from the table and goes and carries this out, you're going to remember this. And what is it he wants them to remember about this? What is, what is it that he wants them to remember about what just happened? About what Judas did? Does he want them to remember that at least they, they're not perfect, but they didn't do that? Does he want them to stand there and say, I thank you, O Lord, that I'm not like Judas over there. No, what he wants them to remember is just what David remembered. When you remember your friend Judas, and you begin to tell people about what happened tonight. Maybe you could be a little kinder than the world has been. Because what have we done to Judas? Judas has become what? He's become the very symbol of a betrayer. And we, we, we do it. We just throw it out there. I think that 70 years later, John remembers this night. He remembers Jesus' words, and John looks at Judas just a little bit differently. He remembers his friend. As Jesus remembers that they were friends. My friend, who have raised up against me, he said. I love that, that I tell you this now before it occurs, so that when it does, you'll believe that I'm him. You'll remember that I forgave Judas even before he did what he was about to do. You'll remember that. And you'll remember that I've done the same for you. It's interesting. Peter then motions to John. He says, who is it? Did I have that up there? No, I don't. I don't have those verses up there. It, Peter motions to John because John's actually sitting in Peter's place. <laughs> and Peter can't stand it, okay? He makes this cryptic statement, and Peter's sitting there going, look, you're sitting where I usually do. I, ask him who it is, okay? Ask him who it is, all right? So they asked who it was, and Jesus answered. He said, it's the one do I give the piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, uh, son of Iscariot, right? And after he received the peace, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, do quickly what you're going to do. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. What's interesting is they all ask who. He says, the one who I give the bread to. But what's interesting is, who did he give the bread to? All of them. He gave it to all of them. Because remember, when all this is said and done, they're questioning what? Lord, who is it? Is it me? And when he says, what you do, do quickly, they say, they had no idea why he said it. So what's interesting about this? They don't know why he said it. They still don't have a clue because they're all too worried about themselves. They think he has to buy more bread. Isn't that what they, what they said? They think he has to buy, oh, gosh darn it. Where am I going? Oh, I'm going backwards. I'm sorry. Me and technology. Some thought that because he had the common purse, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the bread, he immediately went out and it was night. He takes his friend's bread and he goes. Is he going to th follow through with his plan? Yes. And the disciples know it. And that's why Jesus said, when this occurs, when this occurs, you'll remember it. And then you'll believe that I'm he. That I am, is what he says. You'll remember what I've done for you. You'll remember that when you think of Judas. 
In other words, the memory of Judas actually betraying them, Jesus said, I'm not gonna let you, because you're supposed to be representing me, I'm not gonna let you stand on his shoulders thinking that you're better than he is. I'm not going to let you use him as a tool for your self-righteousness. And he doesn't for us either. How many of here, I've done it. I've thought of Judas and started to feel just a little bit better about myself. But we have to remember there wasn't one betrayer at the table that night, there were 12. And it says when Judas took it, he took it into the what? Into the night, into the darkness. Why does he say that? Because the light is still in the room. The light is still in the room and he has some more immersion in mind. The one thing that Judas doesn't get is the rest of the immersion that Jesus gives. And maybe if he did, maybe if he had stayed, he may not, have, may not have thwarted the betrayal plan, but maybe, just maybe, after the betrayal, Jesus might have convicted him, if you will, to come back to him after he did, to receive what? You ever thought, wondered what would happen if Judas came back? I'm glad that he didn't. If he came back into the room after the disciples knew what he had done, probably the disciples would have killed him. Jesus knows it too, doesn't he? Judas goes into the night convicted of his plan. He's gonna carry out this plan. And in the end, Jesus will end up arrested, tried, and crucified. Everything that Judas didn't believe was going to happen. And then after that, Judas hardens his heart even more. Why? Because he didn't stay in the room. He didn't hear what, what the rest of the disciples heard. Not just wash each other's feet, but he's actually going to tell them, I want you to love one another. And by the way, when you love one another, this is how they will know that you're my disciples. By the way, love one another means you're gonna need to love Judas too. Judas didn't get to hear that. So he's left with his sin. The nightmare that every human being should have, left with your own sin. What are you going to do about it? His heart, heart, based on his actions, is that uh, he can't be forgiven, he can't be saved. So he takes care of that torture. He ends it, if you will. But for those disciples that go on, which by the way include you and me, they have to figure out what they're gonna do with Judas in their mind and their heart, don't they? Jesus' solution sounds simple, love him as I have loved you. Like I said, what if he'd come back? John's had 70 years to figure out this as he tells us this story today. And to me, I I hear him meditating. And I hear him approaching Judas very gently here. Don't you? There's a gentleness to John. Why? Because John remembers what Jesus did for him after this night. John hears his voice. Do you know what I've done to you? Everybody needs forgiveness, y'all. John realizes there wasn't one betrayer at the table. They all needed forgiveness. They all needed their feet washed. They all needed the bread and the wine that he served to them. They all needed what he was about to do the next day. So in case you haven't got it yet, that, what that means is we look at no one with contempt. Not after what we've been forgiven. Not after what we've been through. After we've been forgiven, we're not allowed to harden our heart against anybody. I remember when Rob Bell, the popular evangelical pastor, wrote a book called Love Wins. And in the book, all he did was question the doctrine of whether or not a loving God would burn sinners in hell forever. All he did was question that. And the reason that he questioned that, I believe, is because he was listening to Jesus' voice and all of a sudden that particular teaching did not sound like Jesus anymore. 
I'm not hearing him. And you should have seen what the evangelical world did to him. Roasted him, broasted him, ostracized him. He does speaking engagements now. He's not even pastoring anymore. We've lost a brilliant shepherd. Yet even in a church, see, because as soon as I mentioned that, we all perked up, didn't we, and said, well, I'm an Adventist. I don't believe in everlasting burning hell. I thank you, O Lord, I'm not one of those. Didn't you? Yeah, I, I see some nods. I did. I did. But I also remember the first church that I ever preached in. And, and I taught the doctrine, and I thought that, you know, that I'd done a pretty good job teaching. And I remember this young couple, this young, fresh-faced couple, and, and, and they wanted to remind me that they believe that we've all taught that, yes, people are just going to burn up. They won't burn forever, but there are people who need to burn a little longer than the others. I know the trouble that this causes. Does that mean I have to forgive so-and-so? Have to? You don't have to do anything. (laughs) No, you're a free moral agent. You don't have to do anything. All I know is that Jesus has forgiven and asked us to do the same. You know what's funny is that usually the worst forms of abuse, most of us have never gone through that. We don't, it's not the abused that are making that argument or wanting to debate about it, it's the rest of us. We want the debate. Why? Because there's people that I have something against that is a way lot less serious than abuse. That somebody looked at me wrong, that somebody accused me of something uh, that, that isn't true, so forth and so on. And I want... I want permission not to forgive. And then hopefully, every time that happens, I hear Jesus' voice. Greg, do you know what I've done to you? Do you know what I've done for you? And I like that he says, do you know what I've done to you? There's real sin with us. There are real sinners sitting right here today. Real. Real. And we have to figure out what to do. So today we remember our friend Judas. Today we remember our friend Jesus and what we've been asked to do. What we've been asked to do with this power that we've been given. Because we have been given power, haven't we? We've been given power to become the children of God. So we ask what we've done with this power. And to me, the foot washing is the perfect example of what power looks like in the kingdom of heaven versus what the power looks like here. The the kingdom that the disciples are still living in, that Jesus is trying to disabuse them uh, of them for the next five chapters, if you will. Gregory Boyd, in his book, The Myth of a Christian Nation, one talking about uh, how Christians are clamoring for temporal power today. Says this, he goes, here is Jesus possessing all power in heaven and earth, knowing he's about to be betrayed and die a horrible death, and what does he do? He assumes the position of a common household servant, washes his disciples' dirty, smelly feet. The very people he knows will betray and forsake him in the morning. This is how power is wielded in the kingdom of God. If you have all power in heaven and earth, you use it to wash the feet of someone who you know will betray you. In serving like this, Jesus declares to all who are willing to hear, you will not rule by a sword, you will rule with a towel. We're in this together, y'all saint and sinner. We have to carry those who need carrying. We have to forgive those who need forgiving. And who is it that needs forgiving? We all do. We need to forgive and to love whether or not anybody deserves it. And we need to start today with ourselves. Do you know what I've done to you? He says to each and every one of us. 
He has loved us with a love that cannot be described. Yet every Sabbath, we can proclaim that we are. And every day, we can proclaim that we are. And if you're feeling, if you're feeling a lack of that, there could be a, uh, a bunch of reasons why you don't feel the love of God. There's, there's a bunch of reasons. It could be, yes, the church isn't as loving as she should be. We're not loving each other as we should. I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. But also to remember this, that the only way that Jesus is gonna get that across to his disciples is that they need to stay in the room. The only way that the disciples will become to know this is that they're sitting with him now, having that relationship. Because we're gonna have to believe that we have the same relationship as they did, even though he's not physically present. He said, I'll go one up on you. I'll live in you, each and every one of you. So that relationship with the disciples that we're going to read about and study about, you guys, you'll do greater things than them. So this mission of love that they're called to do begins only because they're in his presence. So probably the number one reason of why we may not be able to believe that God loves us as we are, where we are, who we are, is we walked out of the room. We need to stay with him. We need to be present with him. With him and with each other. And if we do, the church will grow. We'll grow. And I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about love and grace. So we'll get to live our mission. To see to it that no one misses or lacks the grace of God. Thank you our friend Judas and Peter for reminding us of this today. Amen.